Today's reading will be from Mark 1, 1 through 8. And when I finish reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Good morning again, everybody. How are you doing this morning? Good. All right. Well, I am incredibly, incredibly thankful that you all are here. We have some new faces. We have some people visiting from uh, all the way down south from Tennessee, uh, which is fantastic. And uh, we're just so thankful as, as Redeemer Church as a whole that you're here to, to celebrate today, to celebrate this launch of a new church, a new work that God is doing. And so thank you so much for taking the time to do that. And uh, we're going to be launching this church in, in a way that I think, we just couldn't think of a better way to do it. And the way that we want to launch this church is, is with a series, with a sermon series, that asks a, a really simple question. And this question is probably one that you've, you've, you've seen before, or maybe you've even asked yourself. And that, that question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And in this series, that's, that's what we want to answer. We want to answer that question, who Jesus really is. Not, not who the culture says Jesus is, but who the Bible says Jesus is. And that's our goal. We want to grow in knowledge and understanding of Him. And ultimately, the main purpose of that is to grow in our relationship to Him. And what better way to, to start a church than to do that? than to answer that question of who Jesus is. Because that's what the church is all about. right? That's what the church is about. It is a community of believers who want to carry each other to the cross, to the foot of the cross, so that we can know and we can experience the love of Jesus more clearly today than we did yesterday. That's our goal. That's what we want to do. And this is why we are launching this church with the study of the Gospel of Mark. But before we, before we dig in, before we start looking at this, this wonderful book of Mark, let's first pray for the Holy Spirit to be our guide and our teacher this morning. Father, you are good. You are so good, Lord, and I thank you so much for bringing us all together this morning. God, thank you so much for the, the work that you are doing here in St. Albans, that you're doing here in Vermont, and Lord, I, I thank you for your word, God. You have spoken, and we have it here, God. We have it in this amazing book, and so we thank you so much that you've given us the privilege of being able to open it up and read it and hear from you. 
And Lord, I also pray, God, that you just guide our time together this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit, Lord, just, just guides us. God, that your spirit is our teacher. Lord, not, not me. God, but the Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Paul, I think this is your water, but I'm going to drink the last sip of it. So wherever you are, sorry about that. We're brothers in Christ, it's fine. All right, so before we get into the meat of our passage, the, the meat of it, we want to kind of know a few things about the book of Mark before we dive in, right? And those things that we want to know is, is kind of simple. It's, it's who wrote it, when it was written, and then lastly, why? Why was it written? So let's, let's begin with the when and the who. The Gospel of Mark was, was written roughly between A.D. 30 and A.D. 35, and, and most biblical scholars agree that though his name is not actually written in the Gospel itself, that it was written by a man named uh, John Mark. And now John Mark was a, a co-laborer and cousin of a man named Barnabas which was a, one of the key figures in the book of Acts. And not only was he a co-laborer of Barnabas, but he was actually a co-laborer of even Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, who wrote a lot of the New Testament. He wrote roughly between 13 and 14 books of the New Testament. And so John Mark was a, was a pretty well-known guy in the early church. But it's also important to know that John Mark was, was not an eyewitness to the events of Jesus. He wasn't actually there himself during the ministry of Jesus. But we know from the earliest church fathers and historians known as uh, Papias and Eusebius, try to say those names three times fast, but that John Mark, who I'll just call Mark for now, he actually spent time with the apostle Peter in Rome. So he spent some time with Barnabas and Paul, but he also spent some time with Peter. And Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And so what John Mark did was, was basically just interview Peter. And he took a lot of the, the experiences and the, the accounts of Peter and wrote them down. He was, kind of, uh, he was known as being uh, Peter's interpreter. And so he just got all these stories, he collected them, and he put it in the Gospel of Mark. So now we have the when and the who figured out. But now we want to answer the question of why. Why did Mark want to interview Peter? Now, there's a, there's a pretty actually simple answer to this question, and, and it's just, who, who wouldn't want to, right? If you had this guy who sat at the foot of Jesus, who, who actually heard Jesus preach, and was one of Jesus' closest confidants during his ministry on this earth, why would you not want to talk to the guy? Why would you not want to interview him and ask him about his experiences to, to hear firsthand, or I guess rather secondhand, what Jesus actually said, what he was like? I would do it. I would want to do it. Could you imagine how incredible that would be? What an experience. But I don't think that was the only reason. I don't, I don't think that was the only reason. I think that there was more going on. I think there was more behind the motivation of Mark to write all of these stories down. You see, all throughout the book of Mark, we get, these, we get these little hints, right? We get these little clues of who the book of Mark was actually written to. And his, his main audience, Mark's main audience that he was trying to zero in on was actually the, the uh, Christians in the city of Rome. 
the Christians in the city of Rome. Now, it's important to have a little bit of context to that. Because around the time that this book was written, there was a massive fire that broke out in Rome. Roughly two-thirds of the city was completely destroyed, and this happened in A.D. 34. And the current emperor at the time was this man named Nero. Nero. And the first several years of his reign were, were fairly quiet. They were just kind of normal. He was just a normal emperor doing normal emperory things. It wasn't, it wasn't anything to you know, write home about. He was just another emperor. But all that kind of changed in A.D. 30. I know this is a lot of dates, but in A.D. 30, things changed with Nero. Something happened to him, and he became power-hungry. He wanted his name to become famous, and so he started to, to do all these construction projects around the city of Rome, and he began to build and build and build until there was just no more room to build. And what happens when there's no more room to build? Well, you've got to destroy some stuff to build up some more. And so a lot of the citizens of Rome believed that Nero was actually behind these fires. So he, they believed that he purposely set them to destroy all of these kind of these uh, not-so-nice-looking buildings, not-so-nice-looking areas of Rome to build up more, grander buildings. But to escape the heat rising against him, Nero began to look for a scapegoat. He began to pass the blame onto someone else, and he found the, the perfect group of people to do it. It's the Christians. He began to blame the Christians. Now, it's, it's good to know that the, the Christians up to this point, they, they weren't loved by Rome. They weren't loved by the citizens. And actually, they were seen as irreligious. The Roman people even called them atheists, as funny as that sounds because they didn't view the Roman emperor as a deity. So they called him atheists. And so Nero sent word throughout the city that, that this destruction had been caused by those anti-religious fanatics, those, those zealous Christians. And it did not take much convincing for all of Rome to turn against the followers of Jesus, and this great persecution began. And to give you just, just a little bit of a taste... Just, just a hint of what that persecution looked like. One of the things that Nero did was, was basically just do a, a nationwide sweep or a, or a citywide sweep. And he tried to arrest and sentence to death as many Christians as he could find, but he didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. In fact, he would then take some of those Christians that he found. He would cover them in pitch or in tar. And he would light them on fire to light up or to provide light for his garden parties. And with others, he would cover them in skins of wild animals and send out packs of dogs to devour them. And still others, he would order to be taken to the Circus Maximus, to be thrown to the lions for entertainment. And so the Christians were forced to either flee Rome or to go underground. Literally, going underground to the catacombs of Rome, surrounded by skeletons and dead bodies. That was, that was the only place that was safe for them to actually meet and talk about their Savior, to talk about Jesus, and that's it. And that really, for us, should put in perspective these walls that we have right now. It puts it in perspective that we can gather in relative safety. 
When these, when these early Christians were surrounded by cadavers, that was the only place that they could freely worship. And even then, it was in fear. Now, it was into this world. It was into that world, that life of misery and fear, that Mark was writing this gospel. And so it's no coincidence that over a third of the book of Mark is dedicated to those final, excruciating, and torturous days of Jesus leading up to his death on the cross. You see, Mark wanted to make sure that the Roman Christians knew that they had a God who was not numb to their pain. It was not distant from their hurting and their suffering, but who himself suffered to pay the price for their sin, to purchase forgiveness with his blood. That's the ultimate purpose behind Mark writing this gospel. And Mark wanted to, to comfort them. He wanted to comfort them by reminding that their own suffering was worth it. It was worth it for the one that they were suffering for. And you actually see Mark do this. You see Mark want to even right away begin to comfort these Christians. You see it in the very first verse. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you again, if you haven't already, to turn them to Mark chapter 1. It's the second book of the New Testament. It says, The beginning of the Gospel. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the word gospel, it comes from the Greek word that means good news. It means good news. And so, and so Mark had the audacity, right? He had the audacity to start this book to these Christians who are suffering under the boot of Nero by saying that this, that this book, that this letter to them contains the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is very important. And this is, this is very important because these, these Christians right now are suffering. And they're probably beginning to wonder, is there any good news about Jesus? Because the only thing that they've experienced so far in the name of Jesus is suffering and death. But, but, in the very next few words in this first sentence... Mark reminds them that their trust in Jesus isn't for nothing. Because this book isn't the good news of just some random man named Jesus. Just some simple human being. No. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, who is who? The Son of God. The Son of God. Now this title that Mark is using for Jesus is not saying that he is a created being like, like my own son, right? There was, there was a point in time in which my son did not exist, and then a point in time in which he was created and he became my son. And there are many cults who would like you to believe that this is what it means for Jesus to be the son of God. But that's false, that's wrong, that's a lie. If you would, flip over to the Gospel of John and take a look at chapter 1, 1 through 2, or verses 1 through 2, rather. 
and then verse 14 as well. And this will help us a little bit to understand what I mean here. And I think we also have a slide for that too. It says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now this means the creative power that created the universe and, and everything that it contains. And you can see this in Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God. So the Word was separate, in a sense, from God the Father. But as we continue reading in verse 1, we also learn that not only was, was the Word with God, but the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's read verse 2. It says, He was in the beginning with God. Now pay attention to that very first word. He was in the beginning with God. What John is doing here, he is now giving the Word personhood. He's giving the Word of God personhood. So God the Father and the Word were same in essence, but different in personhood. Here we, we are beginning to see the two parts of the Trinity of God. And if you're like me, your brain is probably hurting a little bit right now. But try to, try to hang with me. We see God the Father in this passage. And we also are seeing God the Word. Now, jump down to verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. So the Word of God, who is both with God in the beginning and was God from the very beginning of eternity, took on flesh and was given the name, the human name of Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation and God the Father ordained it so to call Jesus His only begotten Son. So we see God the Father and God the Son. Now, one of the reasons why, why I believe, and in, in as I was kind of digging through some commentaries and books and all that good stuff, I believe that, that the reason why He calls Him the Son is that one of the closest human relationships that could possibly convey the intimacy and the depth of the Father's love for Jesus was that of a father and a son. Now I know that there are some fathers in this room, and mothers as well, who deeply, deeply love their son and their daughter. Now, now I want to try to get you to, to hold on to that. Hold on to that love. And if you don't have a child, just try to imagine how much you would love a child. Now hold on to that, and then multiply that by a billion. Multiply that by a billion. And then you will only begin to just scratch the surface of the love and the, the depth of emotion that the Father has for the Son. And the Son has for the Father. Now, that doesn't blow your mind to, to, to try to blow your mind more. We are told elsewhere in the New Testament that if, that if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then the exact same love that the Father has for the Son, He has for you. He has for you. Isn't that amazing? 
The same love that the Father has for Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, is the exact same love that He has for you. It's an infinite love. It's an infinite love that surpasses the love that you even have for your children. I don't deserve that love. I don't. I know myself. I know my sin. And yet, God chooses to love me anyway. Praise God. Praise God for that. So we got a little bit off topic here. So getting, getting back on topic. Mark uses this title for Jesus. He uses the title of Son of God to remind the Roman Christians that they weren't suffering for some crazy man who got himself in trouble with the authorities. It's not what's going on here. They weren't even suffering for simply a great teacher or a great prophet. But Mark reminds them that they are suffering for the sake of Jesus, the Son of God, who was with God in the beginning and who himself is God. Now, Christians here today, if you're, if you're a Christian in this room, this single verse is still oh so important for us today. Because if Jesus was not who he said he was, if he was not who he said he was, if he was not the Son of God, then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christians should be the most pitied people on earth. Why? Because we would have given ourselves to a lie. We have been believing in a lie this whole time. But Mark tells us no. He tells us no. Jesus is the Son of God. And He did rise from the grave. He did accomplish our salvation on the cross. And the eyewitness of over 500 people who saw Him after His resurrection and the transformed lives of the Apostle Paul of Tarsus and the over 5,000 manuscripts that we have of the New Testament alone and the fulfilled prophecies and the list goes on and the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit in us and so much more points us with Mark to the truthfulness and the reality of the deity of Christ. And so even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of persecution and being torn apart by lions, and being eaten by dogs and burned like torches, the Roman Christians, they could stand in confidence. They could stand in confidence that they were not suffering for a lot. It was not a lie. And they were about to enter into the presence of their Messiah, their Savior. Praise God, we do not believe in the lie. We haven't even gone to verse 2 yet. I'm already crying. There's just so much richness, so much depth here. Just in this first verse. So Lord, thank you for that. Let's move on a little bit. Let me pull it together. As you read through Mark, you may also notice that this book actually moves at a, a somewhat breakneck pace. It goes, it goes really, really fast. It's uh, one of the, actually, it is the shortest of the Gospels. In fact, one of the favorite phrases, I think this is actually very funny, one of the favorite phrases that Mark uses in the Gospel is the phrase euthus. Euthus. And what that means is, immediately, 
immediately. And he uses this 42 times in this book alone when the other Gospels either use it like 7 times or just 12 times. Mark uses it 42 times and he uses it to connect these brief stories, these brief accounts of Jesus. So he basically says Jesus is over here and then immediately he goes over here. And so he just breakneck paces this entire book. So in this gospel, we don't get this long, intricate details of Jesus' ministry like you see in maybe Luke. That's not really Mark's goal here. That's not his purpose here. But instead, he, he wants to step back. And he wants to give you the overall picture of the gospel. The overall kind of, the, the skeleton outline of Jesus' ministry. He wants to give you the major facts, right? That's his, that's his purpose. And as you can see, he doesn't, he doesn't even include the, uh, the, the birth story of Jesus. He just skips right on past that. And after Mark tells us that this book was, was written to point people to the Messiah, was written to point people to Jesus, to the Son of God, Mark quickly and somewhat abruptly takes us to the Old Testament in verses 2 and 3. Is that for me? Oh, thank you so much. You're getting a little parched up here. All right. So he takes us abruptly to the Old Testament. So he, he, he kind of starts off with kind of shaking the boat quite a bit, saying that Jesus was the Son of God. And he immediately goes back to the Old Testament. Now, why does he do this? Why does he do this? He does this to show that God is a keeper of promises. Simple. He does it to show that God is a keeper of promises. In Isaiah 53 and in Jeremiah 31 and, and many other places in the Old Testament, the prophets speak of the promise that God would send a Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. But before the Messiah would come, God would first send a herald. He would send a messenger in order to prepare the way for the Messiah. And what Mark does here is locate these texts in the Old Testament which would prophesy the coming of this herald. And he does this in three different sections of the Bible. He does it in, first in Exodus, and then in Isaiah, and then in Malachi. But, but the, the major, the, more of the emphasis is in Isaiah. And that's why he says that, uh, that this is cited from Isaiah. The, the main prominent citation is from Isaiah. So read verses 2 through 3 with me. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So before the Messiah would come, as we just spoke about, God would be first sending his herald, and then the herald's responsibility was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Now, as R.C. Sproul points out, that even today, when Jewish people actually gather to celebrate what is called the Passover Seder, the celebration of being rescued out of slavery in Egypt, they would gather together around the dinner table, but they would actually leave one chair empty. And one of the reasons why they did this was that so somebody would ask, why is that chair empty? What, what, what's going on here? Is there a, like a family member that just hasn't showed up yet? Uh, and someone would respond to that and say that that chair is being saved. That chair is for 
Elijah. That chair is for Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Now, the reason why they did this is because in the, uh, in the last book of the Old Testament, in fact, on the very last page of the last book of the Old Testament, a book called Malachi, it is prophesied. God, God tell, tells the people that he would be sending Elijah back before the Messiah. And Elijah's role would be that role of the messenger. Elijah would be the one who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And so they left a chair for him so that he would have a place to sit when he came back. And so they waited for him. They waited for Elijah with an, with an eager anticipation because they knew that once Elijah showed up, man, the Messiah was right behind. And then, and then we see in verse 3 that this strange man, that this very strange man named John the Baptist appears on the scene, coming out of the wilderness, clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt strapped around his waist, and his diet was disgusting. He ate locusts and wild honey. The wild honey I can get behind, locusts I cannot get behind. And he was preaching, and he was speaking like a prophet. He was preaching and speaking like a prophet. And this was a big deal because you see the people of Israel hadn't seen or heard of a prophet or from a prophet in over 300 years. It's been a long time. And so they assumed that God was just done speaking through prophets. That God had, had just fallen silent. And so when they see him, when they see John the Baptist speaking like a prophet, they go up to him. We actually see in the book of John, they begin, to ask, they begin to ask him, Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Are you the one to come? But John replied, No, I'm not. I'm not him. And what's funny is that they actually asked Jesus the same thing about John the Baptist in Matthew 11. They asked Jesus, the authorities asked Jesus, the religious elite asked him, Who John the Baptist was, and Jesus himself said that he was Elijah. So you have John the Baptist saying that he's not Elijah, and then you have Jesus saying that he is Elijah. So, so how do we explain this? What is going on here? We, we kind of need to get the full picture, and this full picture is actually revealed to us when we look at Luke 1. And in Luke 1, you get the account of the birth story of John the Baptist, which unfortunately we don't have time to dig into today. But in the birth story of John the Baptist, you see an angel approach Zechariah, John the, Baptist's, uh, John the Baptist's soon-to-be father. And what he tells Zechariah is that John will turn many to the Lord. And not only that, but that he will go before the Messiah in the spirit and the power of who? Elijah. Now what this means is that the work and the ministry of Elijah was fulfilled in John the Baptist. So while John was right, he was not Elijah. The Bible does not teach reincarnation. The role of the herald, the one who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah, the role of Elijah was completed and fulfilled in John. And that's, that's huge. Because the Roman Christians who would be reading this gospel were able to see that God's promise to send a messenger was kept. God keeps His promises. 
That's an important point. That's an important place for, uh, for Mark to begin his gospel. Now, obviously a messenger assumes a message. Right? Kind of goes hand in hand. And Mark records with his usual brevity just how it was that John prepared the way and what his message was by saying this. He said, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to see him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with skins, and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, a theologian once asked the question, I wonder what the Christians in Rome thought upon first reading this description of John. And you might be thinking that too. You, they were probably thinking, you mean he was clothed just like Nero clothed my brother, who was then eaten by wild dogs? This God who prepares our salvation is a God who dresses his prophet in the skins of wild beasts? He made him live out in the wilderness, forcing him to eat locusts and wild honey? Now, like I said, you may be wondering those same questions. Because it doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't seem right that the, that the king of the universe would, would send this kind of person, dressed this way, eating these foods to prepare his way. But I want you to allow me to offer two reasons why I believe John the Baptist came onto the scene out of the wilderness and baptizing people in the wilderness, wearing what he was wearing and eating what he was eating and why it was so important. So the first is that if you read the book of Mark carefully, if you look at it carefully, and then if you read the rest of the Bible carefully, especially the Old Testament, you'll see a certain motif. You'll see a certain pattern begin to emerge. And that pattern is that one of God's favorite locations to meet His people and radically change their lives is where? It's in the wilderness. Moses sees the burning bush in the wilderness. God brings a nation to Himself when He calls them out of Egypt in the wilderness. Elijah the prophet was ministered to by ravens in the wilderness. And now, as we continue into the New Testament, we begin to see John baptizing people. Where? In the wilderness. And next week, we'll actually see that wilderness motif continue. So John coming out of the wilderness is actually meant to key us in that John has a personal relationship with God. And the people wanted that. They wanted that. And so they, they went into the wilderness to be baptized by John. And if you find yourself in a wilderness, in the, in the jungle of this life, I want you to know that that is precisely where God wants to meet you. He wants to meet you in the wilderness. Now, perhaps another reason why John wore what he wore and ate what he ate was, was to punctuate the sufficiency of his message. It was to punctuate the sufficiency of his message. You see, John the Baptist, 
When he first came on the scene, he became instantly famous. We see in verse 5 that, that great crowds began to flock around him. They began to surround him. And, and more and more, the people came, uh, began to come and see this, this wild man, this man wearing a camel shirt. And so you imagine that, that the reason why they were attracted to him, it probably was not for his looks. It probably was not for his looks at all. His, I, I don't even want to think about his breath, to be honest with you. No, it's for his message. They came to see him for his message. Look at verse 4, and again, and then at verse, uh, verses 7 and 8. So 4, and then verses 7 and 8. They say, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now go to verses 7 and 8. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Spirit. You see, John's message, his message that he preached was, was this. It was, it was, listen, you are not ready to face God. You are not ready. You desperately need to be cleansed of your sins. You need, you need a bath. You need a bath. You need to be cleansed from your sins. And now is the time. Now is the time to get right with God. It's the time to repent, to turn away from your sins and place your faith in the coming Messiah, in the coming King of kings and Lord of lords, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to touch, let alone even untie. And this baptism that I'm baptizing you with for your repentance of sin and forgiveness is just merely a drama. It's just a picture. It's just a picture of when you will be baptized spiritually. When the Messiah will place in you the Holy Spirit. That was John's message. You see, the baptism of John was a preparation for the forgiveness Christ would accomplish by His death and resurrection. He was preparing them for it. He was getting them ready for it. And this message alone, the message of the coming Messiah who had the power to forgive sins, not partially, but completely, completely was all that John needed. That was it. He didn't need anything else. He didn't need nice clothes. He didn't need a nice haircut. He didn't need any of the fine things in this world to entice people to come and lend him an ear. The message itself was enough. Now, the Gospel of John, not written by this John, but a different John, says in chapter 10 of John the Baptist that John never did a sign. He never did a single miracle. But everything that he said about this man, meaning Jesus, was true. And not only that, but many people believed in him believed in Jesus. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus to come, and he didn't need flash. He didn't need gimmicks to do it. Just, just a simple, yet powerful message. Now as I close, friends, and I know it's been a little long, but as I close, 
I asked you this morning, why, why are you here? Why are you here? Are you here because you want to see a, a, a sign or a miracle? Which, which the Lord does. He does do signs and He does do miracles. I'm not saying He doesn't. But are you here because you want something material from Him? Or for Him to prove yourself to you? Are you here because, because we have a, a nice building? Because trust me, I can show you a weird hole over there. That room over there looks like somebody went like back in time and talked to my eight-year-old self and says, well, you know, what color would you want to paint that room? And just went with it. We have a very creepy second floor. Or are you here for something more? Are you here because the Word is true? Are you here because the Word is true and because what the Bible says about Jesus is true? Are you here because maybe you feel lost in the wilderness of this culture, in this world, and you feel like you have no direction and no hope? Or are you here because you, maybe you feel like you're, you're trapped, right, in the thicket of your sin? And you realize that you desperately need a Savior or a Messiah to set you free. Are you here because you want to meet and know the God who keeps His promises? Who sent a messenger? And who sent the Messiah, God the Son, to die for you? Are you here for a show? Or are you here to meet Jesus? Because He's ready to meet with you. Friends, I hope you join us again next week. I hope the visitors from Tennessee just stay as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark, as we continue to answer the question, who is Jesus? Please pray with me. Father, you are, Lord, I say this all the time, God, but you are good. You are a good God who cares. Lord, you, you cared about these Christians, Lord, who are suffering persecution in Rome. And Lord, you care about us today, God. Lord, we may not be suffering the same kind of persecution, Lord, but God, there are so many people here who are just as lost, God. Who need you just as much. And Lord, so we thank you, God, that you, that you not only sent the messenger who prepared the way, God, but you sent the Messiah. God, you sent the, the Son of God to die for our sins, to take the punishment that we rightly deserved on himself at the cross and so accomplished our salvation. And so, Lord, God, I pray, Lord, if, there's, if there are people in this room who are not saved, God, who, who don't know you, God, I pray, Lord, that you break into their hearts and that they repent of their sin and place their faith in you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.